Welcome to the Third Turn Podcast with your hosts, Kristen Evenson and Mark L. Vincent. Kristen is an executive coach trained in the neuroscience of change, and Mark is the founder of Design Group International and the Society for Process Consulting. On today's episode, they speak with guests Dr. Rob McKenna and Dr. Daniel Halleck of Wild Leaders. Well, I want to welcome my partner in crime here for the Third Turn Podcast, Kristen. I'm really looking forward to today. So can I just ask how you are and if you're ready? I am so ready. I have had experience <laughs> with the wild guys. And so uh-huh. I bring that personal experience to this. And I'm really looking forward to having a conversation about what's behind the scenes for them as they do their work. That's great. I am too. Uh, Wild Leaders, which is led by Dr. Rob McKenna and Dr. Daniel Halleck, have been uh, a special part of what we've been doing in Maestro Level Leaders and uh, are providing some assessment for the people who are in our cohorts. And it has been really fruitful. Folks have responded to that so well. They're fresh off of uh, recording uh, Rob McKenna in a TED Talk. They've got some growth happening and we get to find out more about that as we go. But before we bring them in, I have to ask you, because Wild Leaders is a lot about assessments, right? For for people who have leadership capacity, what is the first ever leadership or personality assessment that you remember completing, Kristen? And, and go a little further here. What did you learn about yourself? Was there a particularly insightful one that you recall? Well, the first was in my first turn as a leader. I was pretty fresh out of school. I'd actually worked for a couple of years in a brokerage firm, Mark, and trained, got my Series 7, was a sales assistant. And I took, in trying to shift to another firm, I took some kind of industrial psychologist session assessment. And the results came back that I was not cut out for transactional security sales, which was devastating. You know, it's my first turn. I want So no boiler room phone calling from you. No, right? no okay. cold calling, which explained a lot about how miserable I had been. But it was, you know, one of those like, oh, my gosh, I'm not good at everything. Um, but it also was freeing because I realized, gosh, I'm much more about customized, you know, financial planning tailored to the person than like just sell stuff. So it was both heartbreaking and freeing, honest, quite honestly. Wow. Well, that made me reflect a bit on my own. When I entered college, we were subjected to a whole battery of everything, you know, Taylor Johnson, MMPI, some little, you know, what is your color of your parachute stuff, <laughs> all that, just a mess of them. And I don't remember anything really standing out as, oh, this is surprising or this this really changes my view of self. But when I got acquainted with predictive index, uh, there's another version of it called culture index and started doing that and began to probe a little bit more deeply in understanding what it means to be highly individualized, to be what they might call an individualist. I began to get some deeper insight into myself because it explains why I'm always over and against whatever's happening. People want to go to the left. I want to talk about the right. (laughs) They want to go to the right. I want to talk about the left because it's both and and you start creating this kind of separation. And I never had understood that very well 
until uh, I began to dig into that a little bit more. So that was a very helpful piece for me. So Rob and Daniel, we've set the stage here saying, you know, here's one that was important to us when we got started. And you've been building careers around this kind of stuff. But for each of you, when you had first experiences with these kinds of assessments, what's one that really actually had some impact for you? What got you started? Yeah, so there's there's two early assessment moments that really stand out to me. They're both very different. The first was using the Strong Interest Inventory, which is a career tool that you use a lot with younger folks in college and early career to figure out how do your interests align with particular occupations. And I actually ended up using that tool for about a decade in my own private practice after, but it did two things. I remember it saying that I would be a good fit for industrial and organizational psychology. It also said I'd be a good fit for training, development, organizational development. And I remember thinking I was going a different direction at the time, but I thought those actually sound kind of cool. Fast forward today, 15, 16 years later, I am in those, those spaces. So that was kind of fun to see. The other process was a, a, a process that was called dependable strengths. And it was really a narrative process getting at strengths. Oftentimes we think of taking using Strengths Finder or a tool like that. But this is really a narrative process of identifying moments in your life when you did something well, were proud of it, and then identifying that narrative and looking at the themes across your narrative, different phases of life in different realms and spheres of life. And it was, it was really rich because the language was mine and it was anchored in an experience I actually had. And so it was an assessment process, not, not the type of assessment that compares you against a, a norm or a standard. It was really bespoke and individualized, to use your word, Mark, to myself. And that was a really powerful process that uh, really shaped how I thought about assessing people for a long time. That's great because it also gets you past this thing of, of saying, yes, I loved my mother and I'm not afraid of door handles and that kind of thing. So, so Rob, how about you? What was one that, that grabbed you earlier? I love it how you ask us a question to identify one and we're both going to identify two. <laughs> That's establishes how you're going to answer questions It's just questions ridiculous, all day long. right? We can't answer a question directly. The first one that came to mind was the California Psychological Inventory. And the reason why was not because of what it assessed. It was because in its feedback, it was three-dimensional. And I was struck by that. So it was like a it was like a, a two-by-two, but then it had a third dimension of depth where it's like from maladaptive to adaptive. And it, it, I think I'm, I'm drawn to things that sort of capture the complexity of what feels like it's more me, you know? And so I, I was really struck. I don't even remember, honestly, how I profiled. I just remember that it was three-dimensional. So that's the first one. The second one was, it's kind of a, a turn on assessment, but there was a question asked in the, the study called The Lessons of Experience, a book, book that was published in 1988, I believe. And it, it really had a huge impact on me. And it was one question that asked this sample of leaders to think about their lives and their careers and to identify three experiences that profoundly transformed the way that they thought about leadership for the rest of their lives. And, uh, and that, that question ended up changing so much in my life, just when I asked it of myself, when I looked at the research on it, because it, it had quantitative aspects, but it also had the qualitative aspects of the stories that were told. And then they also asked about the lessons that were learned. And so that ended up being so formative for me and shaping a lot of the stuff that we do today, actually. So um, those are the two that came to mind. Daniel, you used the word bespoke, and we've titled this episode with you two, uh, this conversation, Bespoke Leadership Development. So I would love it if you two would tell us what gave rise to the wild leaders and what do you offer executive teams? 
I'll start with the first part, Daniel, if I may. And there's a long, there's too long of a story, Kristen, about what gave rise to this because a, a friend of both of ours asked me in India and said, it was asked, how long did it take Rob to develop this process? And he said, well, about 25 years. And it probably is more like my entire lifetime. Hmm. But one of, the, one of the first pieces was uh, I grew up as the three-time son of a university president and my parents led in universities throughout my childhood. And our dinner table was one of the safe places that they could be themselves and to fully process some of the things that were happening. So I described that as being sort of like an advisory board session, sometimes more than a dinner table. And so a leader came up to Daniel and me, I don't know, it was a few years ago, Daniel, and he said, so Rob, what you've tried to do is reconstruct that dinner table for other leaders. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and so that was the formative moment. And then getting into industrial organizational psychology, which is our discipline, and I, I got involved in several longitudinal studies through earlier in my career, where I started to see the, the connections. We actually replicated that, that research I was just describing to you in that lessons of experience research in different industries. And, uh, and it, it started to give me this picture of what a whole leader looks like. And there was so little work where it was sort of this integrative piece where it was looking at the different pieces that are important to consider in a person's development as opposed to just looking at what they're good at or their personality that, that there was so much going on that we actually had understanding of and we could scaffold around. So that was that's sort of the moments that gave rise to what Wild Leaders has now become. And then building processes that would include narrative and and measures of progress and some profiling as well. That could be a more whole story of what a, what leader a leader's developmental journey looks like over their life and career. The other thing that's just one last piece of that is that we were under a different brand for several years, and I was in Oklahoma City and and I was getting advice about how we should launch a nonprofit. And this this leader told me she said you should call the the nonprofit Wild uh, the Wild Foundation. And she said, it stands for whole and intentional leader development. And I thought, I immediately thought like, that's brilliant. Like that is, that is what we do. And so we went through an entire, so when you talk about literally where the name came from, um, it was a friend of mine in Oklahoma city who said that. And it's, so it's been a really important thing because for Daniel and me, that brand is as much a mission as a brand. It's like what we are about. So that's, that's my story, Daniel. I'm sticking to it, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add, Daniel? And I, and I would say to add to that, it's, it's funny how that name was suggested for the nonprofit, but it ended up being the name of the business as well. And when, when it comes to executive leadership teams, the thing that we bring is a system for developing themselves and each other that lives in their business as a business process. And so one of the things we found is that most organizations have a method, a way of doing sales or fundraising. There's a way of managing our books. There's a way of delivering our product or service. The thing that we do, most organizations, even uh, pretty significant organizations often do not have a systematic way of doing the development of leaders and people. And if they do, it's often a heavy curriculum. And so it's hard to replicate, hard to cascade. And if they do assessment, it tends to be one-off cross-sectional moments. And so the thing that we do is we bring a systematic approach that is assessment-based, but the assessment is repeatable and ongoing. So the system, the wild toolkit that we have, that's the core of all of the executive coaching we do, all of our year-long team development processes or building organizational systems and cohorts, the, the wild toolkit is a repeatable system where I'm now going into my fourth cycle 
through the same tools. And that's probably, that's really different where it's moving from assessing a leader by looking at a leader and evaluating a leader to coming alongside a leader and saying, let's create a process for ongoing rich self-discovery and self-awareness so that we don't just become self-aware once and then let it degrade. We actually keep that process ongoing alongside and integrated with the stuff of our business, whether that's the business of the church or the business of a nonprofit or a financial services institution, whatever that business might be, that, that organization. So that's really the sweet spot and bringing the humanity alongside the tactical stuff. I really appreciate that because in my leadership journey, oftentimes, I mean, I love insights and, you know, leadership assessments and what I learned, but it was often delivered in a like, come away with me from your everyday and have this moment of insight that is uniquely yours and then go back and struggle with what to do with it or how to have conversations about it. And I love that you guys accompany leaders and can embed those conversations in the organization, right? Yeah, absolutely. And our hope is that we can walk alongside somebody and do a rich process and then we can hand them over the keys and they can keep running the process on their own. And so I'll often tell leaders I'm talking to, I'm not really interested in coming and doing a seminar. I can, you can find lots of people to do a seminar. I'm way more interested in putting a system in place where 10 years from now, five years from now, we can sit, have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and say, look at the incredible impact on leaders throughout your organization, what that's done for the people you serve by being able to bring us a system and putting it in place like that to me is so much more motivating to see a, a place where people are flourishing in a culture that's healthy than just let's come do a one-off, uh, get a smile sheet and have a good time. And then people say things like that was really fun, but I got to get right. back to work instead of, instead of saying, wow, this was actually really meaningful and it's helping me do my work. We often talk about it, Kristen, as a, when you walk into a gym, like, you know, when it comes to like working out, there are certain muscle groups you have to work and, and certain muscle groups you want to work if you have areas where you want change. And so it's similar to, you know, but, but when you walk into the gym, you know what those muscle groups are, but there's different, what different machines you might jump on. So imagine that this is the leadership gym. We know from four to five decades of research what the main machines need to be or the main muscle groups that need to be worked. And so the, the wild toolkit provides 10 developmental pathways into these, these developmental moments that we know are critical. And so some people think like if they were thinking the, the whole story of a leader is just a story. Well, yes, it's a story, but the complexity of our developmental story requires scaffolding to actually get intentional about that. So that's what the toolkit structures into like things like understanding your competence and your blind spots is a necessary part of that. So we create a tool for that. And so that's what these developmental sort of moments look like with teams. And I, and I would say the bespoke part, and this, this is what, what Rob's life work is, the genius of it is what we often call a focus on the one with an eye to the mm -hmm. many. And so the process is about an individual. That, that's the bespoke part is I can use the tools every year and it's a completely different story. It's not the same assessment tool I used last year. And so it, it's, it's designed that, that a group can use it, but the individual is going to find a custom bespoke experience, even though we're not changing. So we're giving you the same scaffold, but, but, but it's, it's going to shift for your own story and give you some measures of progress around, along the way. So that's the powerful part is we can give people a rich common shared language for development that helps them become more effective and efficient in the way they do that with each other and, and build trust. But it's also going to be very personal to the person. 
And so that's part of the, the, the richness is it's bringing my unique bespoke story alongside what are the things we know that matter for, for the group and, and, and managing that tension between the one and the many at the same time. My background is in brand strategy, so I love the name Wild, Whole, and Intentional Leader Development. Um, you guys also talk about values around being courageous and sacrificial as leaders. And I would love to hear from you what that represents in leader development and why that's so important to you. Yeah, there, there's a, that's, uh, it is very important to us. And one of the, those two words, they present a paradox, if you will, like an inherent tension. Because in the word courageous, like all the things that come along with courage, including conviction, I always describe conviction as showing up like you mean it, you know, and a sense and a strong sense of oneself that requires the leadership requires that fortitude and that, that deeper seatedness in who we are in order to stand the st in the storms of what leading is all about, you know, and then on the other side of that is our looking, looking for people at the same time who would be willing to consider sacrifices because so many of the leaders we know some of the, the great moves that they made, these sacrificial kinds of moments, no one will ever know about. And so we've been all about the, the preparation and, and increasing the readiness of a generation of leaders who would bring that, that strong sense of themselves. Because we believe that that, that that is so critical. And what the tools do is they actually increase that because that awareness across these different areas of my development actually increases what we call developmental efficacy. So they become stronger as leaders. And at the same time, because of the way some of the structure, even the questions that we ask, and also what we would say is our value system is also having leaders at the same time who are saying that don't begin to define themselves by all that awareness. So that they understand because we all know that leading well is that whole story of uh, it's all about you and it's all about your truth and whatever is important to you kind of falls apart if you're gonna to try to lead well. And so it, it's, it is about that, it's the both and again, right? And then also the willingness to say, what might be the cost for me of actually um, of leading? And, and one of the questions that we, we tell people, we talk about reluctance as a core competency, a necessity mm -hmm. for a leader to be able to be honest. And I, I think every senior leader should be asked this question, what causes you to be reluctant to take this role if we were to offer it to you? Because I, I am really cautious about a leader who is not aware of what they should be reluctant about. Because in every case, there's going to be something that's going to come. Or the, I'm also cautious of an organization that's not willing to hear that from a person or hear it as weakness as opposed to sort of being in touch with the reality. And so that's one of the ways that we get at that. But that courageous and sacrificial is so core to what we're about. And I'd add for the whole and intentional leader development piece, the other fun part about wild is that every leader's journey is a wild journey, mm. right? And so if we, every leader I've sat with and you hear a bit of their story and where they came from and where they are now and the twists, the turns, the ups and downs, it, it's a wild, unexpected, surprising story. And each of those words does has deeper meanings. When we talk about whole, we mean the whole. I love that we, as a society and in psychology today, focus on potential and strength. And yet I know from the, the research and, and then even from my own faith tradition that I think people are going to der derail because of blind spots or even sin, if you want to label it like that. And so the whole story includes both my beauty and my brokenness, certainly covering the personal and the professional sides of life. And intentional is about the agency. And that's part of the reason we have a structure and a scaffold is intentional leader development requires thought. It requires planning. It doesn't, it's not accidental. 
but it's also putting the ball in the leader's hand and inviting them in the possibility that they actually could change and that other people could change and that they, they can make a difference. And, and the word development is a synonym for change. And so I always love it when an organization says, you know, uh, Kristen, if you're, you know, an up, up and coming leader, they say, we'd like to invest in you for a leadership development program. And you go, yes, that's awesome. Career growth. And what they're really saying is development has changed. And so we'd like to invite you to change <laughs> and change can be, can be difficult as, as people in general. So that's, that's some of the deeper story behind why, why those words matter to us deeply and the underlying philosophy between behind the, the tools or any of the coaching we do. Well, I do not mean to monopolize the conversation. So Mark, I've got one more question and then I'll pass it off to you. I had the opportunity, as has our Maestro Level Leader cohort, to do the calling and purpose inventory piece of what you guys do. And it was really pivotal for me, especially as I have been navigating my own third turn. And I know from our cohort, it was a pretty pivotal thing for them as well. It's, it's come up in conversations since, Robin Daniel. So it makes me curious, as you think about wild leader development and you think about this third turn that we're specifically focused on, what do you see as unique or especially important at, the, at that later stage of leadership? I'll, I'll jump in there, Kristen, just thinking of the conversations I had with you and other members of the cohort. And then, Rob, I'd love to have your thoughts and just, just in general for me to see leaders in that space. But a couple things came came to me, but I think the calling and purpose inventory is, is a place you see some of that come out. The first was that this idea of developing leaders was on the top of everyone's mind. I mean, every leader thinks about developing leaders or, or, or is told you should think about this. So it's kind of expected a little bit, but there's a difference with the leaders who are in that third turn who I heard and saw that it was not just something that's a part of being a leader, but it was integral to their success or legacy. So to be able to move beyond where they are and move to what they feel is being called to next and that, that unexplored space or leaving the organization and creating future value, as Mark would say, requires investing and developing and preparing others. And so that was a big piece. I also saw and I see this focused energy where the leaders in the third generation are asking themselves, what really should I be focused on now? Not just what's my best and highest prioritization, but where can I add future value now and, and, and for the future and, and, and really focusing my energy and with that new ways of thinking. So realizing that the things I've done in the past that have helped me get here, that the path that's um, brought me here might not be the path for the future. So I heard those themes. And then one thing I want, those are three th themes I, I heard. And then one theme I saw which I don't know if anyone articulated this overtly, but I, I just, I, I've sensed and I've seen it is that the leader's transition is embedded and connected to the organization's transition. So they, they mirror each other. And I think leaders don't often want to admit that or acknowledge that because it can seem egocentric. And uh, if they've come to this place of saying, I really want to create something for others, they don't want to make it about themselves. But the reality is, as a leader is transitioning, so let's say, from CEO to founder role and, and passing the baton or moving beyond it and helping to continue to be there to shape what, what, the, what the future looks like when they're actually running things, their transition, their evolution as a leader 
cannot help but impact the business. And so there's often this thought of, well, the business is transitioning as it's growing here. I'm on my own personal journey here. And the reality is they're actually really tightly connected, maybe more than the leader I think uh, might even realize. Hmm. Interesting. I, uh, my dad wrote a book called Retirement is Not for Sissies. Hmm. And um, I just I think it's, a, um, it's it, it really, I mean, he, it was his personal experience of going through that. And I think that there's all parts of the third turn that's not for sissies. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, there's things that there are things that I take forward from him. I think that are, have been built into the way that we do things. One of the the tragedies is that people assume that people at that third turn have it all figured out, and they just don't. Like we're we're investing in leaders across the lifespan. I I'm, I got leaders in the in their 90s who are saying, "What do I do now that I have? I don't have any capacity to spend any of the money that I have actually saved." So they're trying to figure out what do I do when the only thing I can do is give. And so I think there's an interesting moment where, first of all, we we kind of make assumptions about what these different seasons of life look like. And I think some of that's a construction of our culture. Like even the concept of retirement is a, is a funny thing, mm-hmm. where we picked an age and we've said this is when it happens. I'm not saying that, that slowing down doesn't happen because, you know, it's that I, I've seen I denied the, the existence of developmental stages until I experienced the first one, hmm. the adult development stages and the research around that. And so and then I was like, oh, no, this is real. And like, you know, I can, you kind of think when you're younger, oh, that's not going to apply to me. <laughs> and so but I think one of the one of the tragedies is people think that that developmental journey is over. And we experience people in the third turn whose strategic networks disappear with one job change. Maybe, maybe they've managed, they've been in an organization where they had 10,000 employees and then they go down to being an individual consultant and there's no one else, there's no one who understands them at that point. Or their set of competencies that got them to that point is very different now that they're trying to figure out how to be an executive coach, you know, looking back. And so, the, first of all, the developmental journey for them continues. And then the other thing is this, is that when it comes to succession planning, I'm kind of, my wife's always like, I can't believe you say this to people, but is that really you're preparing people for a moment where you're you're no longer is it consequential? You know what I mean? Where like, like I, we deal with more senior leaders who can, will not get out of the way and let someone else lead. And they feel they're pulled back by a board or by someone else. And so that whole concept of succession is something where you're really trying to prepare people for a time where what you have done has started the ball rolling. But we, we step back and one of the whole parts of our story is not just width, but it's depth and length. And so we always, we say to leaders, what if, what if the reason you were here is to begin something that you won't see completed. Mm. How would it change your investment in the leaders around you, in your organization? How would it change your investment in your own children? If, if it's going not even, if it's not even gonna be your children, if it's gonna be someone that you're never gonna meet whose actual story is gonna continue because of something you began long after you're gone. And it's just a way different way of thinking about those kinds of turns. And for me, it changes my perspective on everything. Please stay tuned. We will return to this conversation with Drs. Rob McKenna and Daniel Halleck of Wild Leaders in just a moment. Are you a business leader or owner who's beginning to think about how and when and what succession might look like for you and your organization? If so, Maestro Level Leaders was designed with you in mind. This peer-based leadership journey helps leaders set aside intentional, proactive time to explore and map what succession, sustained organizational success, and legacy looks like in each leader's unique life and organizational context. Our next cohort kicks off in January and is forming now. So if this sounds helpful for you or someone you know, and you'd like to learn more, please go to maestroleveleaders.com 
and complete the form there to start a conversation. Our conversation today is about bespoke executive leadership development with Drs. Rob McKenna and Dr. Daniel Halleck of Wild Leaders. I have to just underline something here before I ask a question. You talked a lot about this intersection between the organization and that executive leader, especially the one that's in their third turn. And I think that's what gave rise to this whole Maestro Level Leaders Initiative and this third turn podcast is that there is an intersection here where they have an effect on each other. And if a person is not reflective, not going deep in their interior world, as well as to the external part of the business, they're going to tank not just themselves and maybe even their family, they're going to tank the business. And if those up and coming leaders aren't getting in touch with themselves, they're going to be in some kind of an ego battle with each other, let alone with a founder. And that also is going to destroy future value. It's just such an important moment in the life of that leader and that organization. And I I really am happy to hear you underlining how that needs to be assessed and worked through and developed I'd like to return to this idea of doing leadership development in a tailored and contextual fashion. There's a lot of product out there, and it is a product approach. Take this, do this off the shelf, have the experience. It's almost like a consumer type of a thing. And I keep running into organizations that would say, well, we've done that. We've done strength finders. We've done what color is your parachute. We've done, and then you you start listing all of the things that they've done in turn. And there's not really something that's stuck being tracked over time. But even if it is embedded, It is done as a product, like um, a way to do annual reviews and to build compensation and to, to determine fit, but not so much on the ongoing development, certainly not involving a lot of self reflection. So, my question really is this How do you see the advantage of this more bespoke and contextual, individualized approach? as opposed to just buying something off the shelf. We call it contextualized measurement is one of the terms that we use. And one of the most powerful things that when you talk to a clinical psychologist, as an example, clinicians know something that's a, that's a big secret. They know that an intervention with a person has begun as soon as the person makes an appointment. So if you think about that for just a moment, because the person has cognitively expressed intent. And so there's a, there's a question that's already in the person's mind that, they, that they're actually self-assessing already. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. how do I get help mm-hmm. is the question, probably whatever, some version of that question. So what's fascinating about the whole concept of assessment, first of all, is that assessment processes, and by the way, people who don't get this, this, this sounds like I'm speaking a whole different language, is that assessment process, what we're used to is that the result is what's important. We are just, we are, we are, we have been formed into give me my, give me my shape, my color, my number, you know, it's like, and then in my, or my set of letters or whatever it is, or my profile. And that's what I'm looking for. That's the test I'm trying to pass. As opposed to what's really happening inside of a leader without much scaffolding before they have a system is that they're already asking those questions. And so what's the reality? And there are some really smart scientists out there and researchers at at different universities who have discovered this, but they didn't unpack this because a lot of people understand and are saying that assessment is one of the ways to increase wet readiness. What we found, like leader readiness and preparedness, what we found is that the process of actually asking the questions 
was just as important as the feedback report. Hmm. Um, and so when we talk about contextualized measurement, it's one thing for Mark to know his big five personality scores, which the Wild Toolkit has that built within it. But it's a whole other thing for Mark to talk to people in his organizations about, let me tell you, when we use the word bespoke, by the way, the bespoke means customized. There's a there's a, a custom tailor shop near my home called Bespoke. And I was like, that's awesome. You know, and so it means that. <laughs> so so we know that there are general personality principles that apply across all categories of human beings. This big five is a great example of that. But the way it works out in Mark's life is very, very interesting. So it's, it's, these, it's these questions that say like, so Mark, tell me about when your extroversion gets problematic for you. You know what I mean? Or it's, it's, it's those kinds of stories, but even just simply in the process of asking a question. So within the wild toolkit, we might ask you a battery of questions that's developing a profile. It'll give you a quantitative score or, or categorize you in a certain way, but then we'll ask you a, a narrative question or a or qualitative question right after this says, Hey Mark, you just answer these 10 questions. What are you thinking right now? Like, what did you become aware of as you were responding to the questions and the depth of what takes place? And this is, this is why people, haven't ever experienced something so real like this as a system where at the beginning they'll, we had, a, we had a, a CEO say to Daniel, I feel like Daniel threw me in the deep end of the pool and just like threw me in. And then he goes, no, then I realized after we went through the process again, because my story begins to deepen, I become more honest with myself that it, it changes over seasons. And then he realized Daniel standing on the edge and he said, no, Daniel threw me a, a life raft or a, you know what I mean? A, a ring. And then he said, and then he said this year, he said, now I'm starting to swim. And so it's that realization that someone could, could develop depth through questions, through a process that is both, the feedback reports are amazing in the process. Like we love those things, but they include both your narrative and the measures of progress. And it, and it develops what one leader said to us is he said, you guys are all about deep seated leader preparation. And it's like, we're like, yeah, because everyone is left with some of those one-off assessments that are not bad. They're good developmental moments, but every single time we've heard this hundreds and hundreds of times, leaders stop and they say, what's next? And so we just tell them like, you keep going, your narrative changes. I just got to get excited about that, Mark. Right. Yeah. I, I wish you'd be more passionate, Rob, about what you're delivering to us. That would be so helpful. Daniel, anything you want to add to that before I move on to a next question that I have for you? Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would just say is getting the easy glossy off the shelf has a place it's a, but it is a developmental appetizer like rob hmm. said and hmm. so you will be left hungry and i think one of the questions i'm always working to discern with the leader for themselves and for us is to say what is the reason you want to develop leaders is it because you should and ought to and somebody told you to is it because the Glassdoor reviews are calling for it. Is it because people have said, well, other companies like us are doing it. And so you feel like you want to give money to something. And that's what we call executive buy-in. We convince an executive to give us money. And we're much less interested in executive buy-in because it's not solving a longer term solution, which I think is a future value that third turn and maestro level leaders is about. I'm more interested in saying, let's invest in leadership participation executive participation where that leader wants to grow and develop alongside people and realizes that the value of people isn't just a cliche people are our greatest asset but it truly is a generative long-term proposition and when that mindset is there or cultivated then suddenly the one-off tool might be great for retreat but it doesn't actually solve the deeper issue which is i want to develop the capacity of leaders 
who are going to take this mission to the next level. Mm -hmm. And so that longer term piece requires something that actually serves the organization, but honors the person Mm -hmm. and goes beyond the one off. One of the elements I really enjoy about what the wild leader assessments does is it works in support of executive thinking. And in my work, I'm experiencing this again and again, that people have grown up sort of in a single stream inside of organizational life, maybe a couple of streams that there was some cross-functional experience, but I'm an accounting person, I'm a marketing person, whatever, and the ability to do the reflective conversation, to think in complexity, to problem solve where adaptive change is involved instead of just technical change. It's just not well-developed, but this kind of exercise, long-term, over time, asking the narrative, getting down into that actually supports that kind of development of thought process and problem solving. You both have referred to this, that you you both come out of an industrial organizational psychology background. And this is where I want to ask, I think, a fairly important question here. In industry in general and in organizations, if they're really large, they tend to know what IO psychology is or have some sense of it and might even employ some of those pieces. But when you get down to the middle size and smaller organization where they benefit from all that IO psychology provides, there is a very minimal understanding, if at all. I mean, my normal experience is if I say IO psychologist, people say, what's that? What is that? They don't, they don't, they don't know it. And uh, so there is a primer here that I'd like to ask for. And just have you say, you know, what is industrial organizational psychology and why does what it offer matter to that small nonprofit, that small privately held business, that middle sized business that's got increasing HR issues or or whatever else? Uh, Just just give us an insight into that, because it's such a big part of what how you were shaped and what you're offering. Can I, can I turn your question around, Mark, and say... Yes, make it a better question, please. Well, no, 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 <laughs> but, I, but I would turn it around and I would say, what is it that those those kinds of organizations you just described offer us? Because that's that's been one of the keys for our ability to serve. So uh, my brother developed the Leadership Bench Program at a very large software company in Redmond, Washington. And it's that, that program is, is outstanding. And they had the resources to say, like, how are we going to use all this research in industrial organizational psychology, what we understand about the psychology of leading and apply it. So we built that at a time before the a web-based infrastructure even existed. And so it, that's that kind of thinking does occur, but it doesn't occur in large organizations as, as often as I wish. Because, it, because once you start to get into those large system structures, it becomes difficult to be, continue to see people as human beings. It's just a lot of emphasis sometimes in our field that is shifting, but has been it's, it's slightly dehumanizing because there's a there's a deeper whole human story of development. That's that's not as not simply tied up with a bow in uh, BUBU, like I said before, but it's also not simply competencies. You know what I mean? Like it's not just w- what people are good at. There's a, there are deeper character related issues. So what's been amazing for us in terms of what we need in the small to mid cap market, when I say mid cap, I'm talking about pretty big organizations, but is there's an incredible opportunity because in some cases those cultures aren't so, uh, it isn't like trying to steer an aircraft carrier left. You know what I mean? It's like that there actually is agility and there's a capacity to change culture because leader, when you put a whole leader development process in place, 
it very quickly becomes a culture shift because you're talking about building an organization where someone now sees like, oh, my leaders are going to invest in me the moment I came, I got hired here. And, and, uh, and so what's been amazing for us is that some of those organizations like you described, that's what we need them to be. Because one of the things also that Daniel said that we cannot fly over too quickly is in most cases, we require that the most senior leader in the business, and it may be the most senior leader within a part of a business, be using the tools. So when Daniel described participation, there is nothing more powerful than a CEO getting up in front of an all hands and saying, let me tell you what the skills and knowledge inventory told me about me that I didn't know. And let me tell you what I'm continuing to work on. And that doesn't happen that often. And so buy-in is saying like, I'm going to buy this and not use it. And everyone else is going to have to have to use it. Participation in mm -hmm. every leader in the, across the organization is in. So that's why for us, I just turn it around and I say that's been it's been an incredible place for us to serve alongside leaders who who, who are like minded and share that passion. So Rob, you turned the question around. I'll 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 just I'll come out at it right out of its head. You know, industrial organizational psychology, it's it just sounds cool. So we like to use that term. No one knows say, what it is. We so, call you know. But, but the way the way I like to think of it is those who those who know it, most people have seen some study that's come out of a big company. You know, Google found that best managers do these five things. You know, such and such place said that these are the three keys to culture. If it's actually worthwhile or valid, it's probably that research and any programming based around it has been uh, conducted and then developed by industrial organizational psychologists basically taking what we know from decades of research in psychology and psychological principles and data and saying what do we know about the human side of business so the type of questions that io psychologists typically answer um, would be like how do i develop leaders like how do, what do we actually know about developing leaders or building culture or selecting the right people or motivating folks um, or creating organizational systems and, 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 and structures. That's what IO psychologists typically do. The big many big companies have figured it out. And so they invest a ton of money and let's optimize the people side. And so unfortunately, the smaller organizations or nonprofits sometimes miss it. The thing that Rob is alluding to that are, that, that, and so it's a power, it's a powerful discipline. It's a powerful set of skills. Unfortunately, I used that word intentionally a moment ago. A lot of our peers are focused on optimizing people for the workplace. Hmm. And so the problem is, even though it's a psychology discipline focused on people, we can forget that it's people. And so we can treat people like we're machines. So we're optimizing a person like we're optimizing something on the assembly line or a piece of equipment. And so the tension that we ride in our work is how do we take what we know and add value to an organization by making people more effective and more productive, but also doing it in a way that they're still human, <laughs> that we're bringing in their whole story and not just extracting value out of the people um, in, in the business. And so when we can partner with leaders who have a deeper values base around themselves or how they see their organization, it's incredible to bring that science alongside that. Because we've also seen organizations that are really good at extracting value out of people and turning them into machines. Wow, you guys. I, I hope you'll come back for another conversation because I feel like there's so much more to I talk about. Um, <laughs> as long as you'll have us back. We will have, have you back. Yes. Yeah. And um, I, 
I have had the benefit of seeing the impact of what you do in individual leaders and lives just by virtue of our cohort. And I think it'd be fun to hear some stories when you guys come back about how you've seen this play out and impact it's had on leaders and organizations. So anyway, but it's time to wrap this thing up for now. Um, and so we turn to our turning point questions. And uh, we have three questions we'll ask you both as we wrap up. The first, Daniel and Rob, is, is there any other role or interest you would have pursued? If you weren't an industrial organizational psychologist, what would you have been? I always joke that I wish I had gone to seminary and I almost did. So in a different life, I would have been a pastor. Mm. And the irony is we serve a lot of pastors today. So yeah, I'm probably, that's probably one of the answers for me too, is I almost went to seminary also, but no one would take me. So uh, that would be one. Yeah, but, the, but the other honest answer is uh, I have a Les Paul hanging on my wall right next to me here, and I would have been a full-time musician. Uh, I, I lived near Waukesha for a long time. That's Les Paul's home. So okay. I know what you're talking about. We even have a Les Paul byway or thoroughfare or something up where, where that home of mine <laughs> that's was. That's awesome, Mark. Second question, you guys, what is a leadership lesson you wish you had learned earlier? I, th I wish I learned earlier that every leader needs something different. I've always assumed that you see these strong leaders who might be overbearing and you want to soften them down. And uh, it, I think it's easy to, to look at a particular leader and think this is what they need. And, and every some people need that and some people need to be strengthened. And so that back to that bespoke piece, looking at what does this leader need and not just jumping to my favorite overused principle. Mine is, that's good, Daniel. Mine is that the, the, the way that you show up and sometimes your own relevance is affected by the context around you. And so some people will say about me that I bring an, so much conviction that I'm intimidating. And I once heard that and I thought it really surprised me because I'm like, me, I don't feel like that. But I realized that my passion for what we do sometimes gets expressed in ways that's like too much for some people. But I have found that, you know, that most leaders who have already had some bumps receive it really well. So I think that's one of the things is that sometimes that context is affecting you in ways you may not realize. Mm -hmm. Okay, final question. What's a current book you're each reading and why did you choose it? Oh, I love this question. I'm going first. I'm going first. Hold on. <laughs> good, good. So this is my favorite book of the last year still, and it's D uh, Dag Hammarskjöld's uh, Markings. So Dag was the person who was formative in, in shaping the United Nations. And what's fascinating, but this is a book of that's more like poetry, you know, but what's fascinating about it is he doesn't mention his career once in here. And I'm just, I'm so impacted by this leader that you never would have known all that was inside this person. And then you read this and you're like, holy cow, there is depth of spirit there. So that's the book I named mm. Daniel. And he was writing in a second language as well. I mean, you know, Crazy. English was not his first language and it's such a beautifully written piece of prose. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, reading Failure of Nerve by Edwin Freeman, which, which is tied deeply to a lot of the work we do. And I'm also reading a very thick systematic theology textbook with a bunch of guys. And so I, I kind of live in between that business, psychology, theology world. Those are the, the lanes I tend to run in. Wow. It seems like you ought to work in like some children's literature here or there. <laughs> Something like this is Spock. I've got three kids, so they, they help they help diversify my uh, <laughs> my my diet with, with all with all the fun kid stuff that I, uh, I get to read in as well. So Well, this has been great. <laughs> 
And I have a suggestion for you both, because I know you do these wild Fridays where you get people on and you talk and you have a conversation. I think, Daniel, one key question, I think you could go for hours on this. What is your favorite overused leadership principle? That would be an amazing conversation. And I I would hope to hear that someday. So Dr. Rob McKenna and, and Dr. Daniel Halleck, we are so glad that you joined us. And we're so glad to have the resources of Wild Leaders as a part of what we do in Maestro Level Leaders and in the cohort experience that we sponsor. And we're really gratified you are willing to join us for this conversation. You've been listening to the Third Turn Podcast, which is a production of Design Group International. I'm Mark L. Vincent, co-hosting these conversations with Kristen Evenson. We are grateful for Josh Brinkman, who engineers our sound, and Jennifer Miller, who does those things a producer does. So we are building now our next Maestro Level Leader cohort. Kristen Evenson is going to be leading that cohort. She'd love to talk with you or someone you might introduce to us. So a conversation gets started by your going to maestroleveleaders.com and letting us know and you will be talking to Kristen, not a machine and not some intermediary. Of course, we welcome your subscription. You're hitting like 10 or more times on places like LinkedIn and Facebook or helping us build an audience by sharing this resource with others. Friends, there's a reason that we are so committed to this work. We're in a world of significant turmoil and it's needed. And if you listen for just a moment at the end of the music, you're going to hear the reason why. This is for our grandchildren's grandchildren.